0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. I just want to give a very brief introduction to the Reverend Gyozan Royce Johnson, who is a priest, senior, senior practitioner, I think you're officially assistant priest at Houston Zen Center. And I can't remember when I first met Royce, but it seems like I've always known Royce. <laughs> And those of you who have practiced in Houston uh, or at the Retreat Center, Dan Satsashin already know him. And Royce's extensive monastic practice and residential practice in Houston, and I would guess I would say he's sort of indispensable to practice uh, there. Uh, he is a resident priest and uh, offers classes and dharma talks in houston i'm very grateful to him for taking time out on what i think is usually a day off or partial day off at least (laughs) uh, in houston to speak to us and uh his uh, subject is the way right before you
1: i uh must confess this might be a little bit of a bait and switch in terms of uh the title of this dharma talk i needed to change it so, humor and laughter and practice is going to be the title of the talk this morning. An interviewer once asked Shunryu Suzuki Roshi if all of his students were enlightened, and he replied, They are until they open their mouths. <laughs> so, already you can see where this is going to go. Good morning, Reverend Choro. Thank you for inviting me to enlighten the Austin Sangha. Well, good morning, Austin Sangha. It's so nice to see your sterile, rendered and pixelated faces. (laughs) Just seeing all of you slightly lessens my white hot hatred of the Zoom interface. (laughs) Also, I offer gratitude to my teacher, Konjin Galen Godwin for her steady support of my practice. Uh, This morning, I'd like to touch upon a fundamental aspect of our human condition And that is laughter and humor and our practice with the Buddha Dharma. So enlighten up as we delve into exploring (laughs) humor and laughter in the teachings and in our own individual practice lives. So I'd like to start off by exploring the role, if any, of humor and laughter in the early teachings and the Buddha's position, if any, on the subjects. Pali Canon has a reputation of being humorless and i think that same reputation can also apply to other foundational religious texts like the bible and the torah and the quran and i think it stands to reason that when one's eternal salvation is at stake and being banished to hell for eternity is a distinct possibility or when one is staring down untold trillions of rebirths as a parasite in a yak's rectum (laughs) It's not the time for wisecracks and giggles. So it's understandable, the dryness, the seriousness. In the wailing discourse of the Pali Canon, for example, one is instructed or warned of laughing excessively or showing one's teeth. And from the Dhammapada comes this buzzkill. What laughter? Why joy when constantly a Enveloped in darkness, don't you look for a lamp? Well, it turns out there are indeed many forms of humor in the early teachings, and yet it can be easily overlooked. One reason why humor in the first turning of the Dharma wheel goes unrecognized relates to its style, which is subtle, deadpan, and dry. And so often it goes over the heads of us modern folk who are used to humor being telegraphed well in advance and also being more pervasive Uh, another reason may be because the translators themselves may have missed the fact that a passage was meant to be humorous and so translated it in a flat pedantic way in the canon it seems that there are subtle discrete instances of humor and overall the primary reasons for employing humor as a teaching device is as a means for fostering disenchantment and discernment to help see through enthrallment and illuminate the ridiculousness and folly of following after impermanent sense gratification. So let's take a look at what humor looks like in teachings of the from the Pali Canon. Now on that occasion, the monks of Olavi were having huts built from their own begging, having no sponsors, destined for themselves, not to any standard measurement that did not come to completion. They were continually begging, continually hinting, give a man, give labor, give an ox, give a wagon, give a machete, give an ax, give a spade, give a chisel, give rushes, give reeds, give grass, give clay, People harassed with the begging, harassed with the hinting, on seeing the monks would feel apprehensive, alarmed, would run away, would take another route, face another direction, close the door. Even on seeing cows, they would run away, imagining them to be the monks. (laughs) I think the modern equivalent to that story could be like when you answer your doorbell and there's two guys on the porch, wearing white shirts and ties with her bicycles and a handful of pamphlets. Most of these stories in their original form are quite long, so what you're hearing is sort of abbreviated versions. this next one deals with the uh, not wise decision to try and seduce a nun. The story reads as an extravagant poem with exquisitely sensual tone. This nun, Subha, S-U-V-H-A, Subha, was walking through a mango grove when she is approached, accosted, by a young man. Uh, Throughout the poem, the young man goes on and on and on about Subha's beauty and how he will give her a beautiful life and that she's wasting her time in practicing the path. As the story continues, Subha, counters the man's advances by reiterating her commitment to being on the path. Finally, focusing on how there's nothing dear to him than her eyes, she responds by essentially saying, you like my eyes so much? And with that, she plucks out her eyeball and says, take this eye, it's yours. The poem goes on now with the young man freaked out and begging for forgiveness, and hopefully learning a lesson. And by the way, uh, the Buddha restored Subha's eyeball after visiting him, and uh, when she saw the mark of excellent merit from the Buddha. Now the aspect of the story certainly accords with the emphasis on viewing the human body in sheer biological terms, which is often conveyed as gross and unappealing. Subha's eyes may have very well been stunning, but when one of them is rolling around in the palm of her hand, It kind of shifts the romantic perspective. Then there's the story, the love song of, forgive my pronunciation, the love song of Pankasika. Pankasika was a deva known as a gandabas. These devas have a reputation for being the adolescents of the deva world. This deva, with utter naive ignorance, performs an outrageously inappropriate song in front of the Buddha, mix, mixing in themes of love and sex and things with the Dharma and enlightenment. And now throughout the sheer cringe of the performance, the Buddha politely sits there listening. And all the while that we're reading a story, we can't help but wonder what's going on, what's going through the Buddha's mind in the face of such ludicrousness. When a performance is over, the Buddha offers a masterclass and skillful means and right speech and patience by complimenting the Deva on his singing and lute skills, while at the same time avoiding any mention of the subject matter. Perhaps he recognized the Deva's intentions as sincere, but seriously misguided. Devas, Brahmas, other nonhumans, palace life, psychic powers, viewpoints, Opposed to the Dharma, human foibles and weaknesses are all right-picking in the canon for some form of humor or another. Again, with the ultimate goal of illuminating the foolishness or peril of following after anything other than the Buddha and the path. This next tale is called A Conversation with the Gods. Once there was a monk named Kavata, One day, a thought occurred to Kavata. Where do the four great elements, the earth property, the wind property, the fire property, and the liquid property cease without remainder? That is to say, this monk basically wanted to know where the physical universe ends. And so by means of profound concentration, the way leading to the gods appeared in the center of his mind. He approached the gods of the retinue of the four great kings and asked them, friends, where does the physical universe end? And the gods responded by saying, we also don't know where the physical universe ends. Go ask the four great kings. Their knowledge is higher and more sublime than ours. So he approaches the four great kings and asks them the same question. Where does the physical universe end? The four great kings don't know either, and they send them to the gods of the 33. Kavada asked the gods of the 33, and they also don't know, and send them to Saka, ruler of the gods. And Saka doesn't know where the universe ends either. And on he goes, asking the Yama gods, god Santusita, the nima Manorati god, god Sunamita and God Vasavati, and all don't know where the universe ends. So again, Kavata arouses his incredible concentration, and he gains access to the retinue of Brahmas, and asks the question, where does the physical universe end? And they don't know either, but after a while, the great Brahma herself appeared, and Kavata asks again this question, Friend, where do the four great elements, the earth property, the wind property, the fire property, and the liquid property cease without remainder? The great Brahma answered, proclaiming, I, Monk, am Brahma, the great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all seeing all-powerful, the sovereign Lord, the maker, the creator, the chief, a pointer and ruler, mother of all that has been and shall be. Kavada considers this and says, friend, I did not ask you if you were Brahma, the great Brahma, the, the unconquered, the all seeing the all powerful, the sovereign Lord, the maker, the creator, chief, a pointer and ruler, mother of all that has been and shall be. I asked you, Where does the universe end? (laughs) And so they go back and forth like this three times until finally the great Brahma takes the monk by the arm, leads him off to one side and says to him, these gods of the retinue of Brahma believe. There's nothing that the great Brahma does not know. There's nothing (laughs) that the great Brahma does not see. There's nothing of which the great Brahma is unaware. There's nothing that the great Brahma has not realized. That is why I did not say in your presence that I, too, don't know where the four great <laughs> right elements to me. So you have acted wrongly, acted incorrectly, in bypassing a blessed one in search of an answer to this question elsewhere. Go right back to the blessed one, and on arrival, ask him this question. However he answers it, you should take it to heart. So that's exactly what Kavata does. He asked the Buddha himself, where do the four great elements cease without remainder? And the Buddha responds by offering Kavata this verse. Where do water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing? Where are long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form brought to an end? And the answer to that is consciousness without feature, without end, luminous all around, here water earth fire and wind have no footing here long and short coarse, fine fair and foul name and form are all brought to an end with the cessation of the activity of consciousness each is here brought to an end so what struck me about this fun story is uh kind of has this i think i want to talk to your manager vibe demanding to talk to the next supervisor. So for the most part, the humor in the Pali Canon accords with the Buddha's directives on right speech. That is, is it true? Is it timely? Is it beneficial? And does it come from a kind heart? I say for the most part, because the humor found in the canon comes from at least four different sources. Uh, the reported speech of the Buddha himself, sometimes from his awakened disciples. In other cases, the humor can be can come from more ordinary folks, lay and monastic, and yet in other instances the humor can come about in the way compilers the or the translators of the canon shape their narratives. Before moving on, I want to share a quote in an observation about two living masters of the old school, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, the scholar monk, observes, I found that if a student cannot laugh at his or herself, that student's practice is going to crash. And as far as smiling and showing teeth, that is exactly what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is doing in a photograph in our foyer and taking joy in the Dharma as he continuously works to end hunger worldwide. So as for humor and Zen, there isn't any. <laughs> I couldn't find a single instance of levity, jocularity, whim- murders, or whimsy. I did find a thesaurus online though, so that was helpful. <laughs> Okay. Once during Dokasan, a student asked her teacher, Is it okay if I use email or should I handwrite all my letters? The master replied, Yeah, you can use email. No attachments.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> humor in Zen is employed for quite different reasons than in the polycanon. And it's not always humor necessarily. We often get the impression of playfulness as the backdrop of some of these seemingly serious encounters. One functional role of humor in Zen is to point out the absurdity in attempting to classify reality into categories. An example of this can be seen in the Zen antidote about a Zen master who lay dying. His monks all gathered around his deathbed and the senior monk leans over and asks the master for any final words of wisdom for his monks. The old master weakly says, tell them truth is like a river. Senior monk relays this message to the other monks. The youngest monk in a group is confused and asks, what does he mean? Truth is like a river. The senior monk relays this question to the master and the master replies, okay, Truth is not like a river. (laughs) We can see here a serious message wrapped up in a humorous package, the absurdity of classifying things into our little boxes. I like to use uh, this imputational character. Galen Roshi likes to use the phrase, decorate. We dress up, decorate reality. I like to use the word sticky notes, attached to everything as a way of uh, imputing reality casting projections so truth is and is not like a river it transcends classification and conceptualization humor and zen stories can function to collapse dualities between the sacred and the profane or the holy and the mundane as an umans response to the question what is buddha with Uman responding, dried dung, <laughs> or Tozan. Tozan's uh, reply to the question, what is Buddha? With Tozan replying, three pounds of flax. Other functions of humor and Zen can serve to illuminate the harmony in opposites. Seeing non-duality within duality, vice versa, yin and yang symbol laughter can appear when a distance between two contradictory ideas is suddenly eliminated such as realizing that the snake is actually a stick and it's okay to come down out of the tree now (laughs) some monks were sitting quietly in the garden of a buddhist monastery on a calm beautiful day the prayer flag of the roof started flapping and fluttering in a breeze a young monk observed, "Flag is flapping." Another monk said, "Wind is, fla- is flapping the flag." The Chan master Hui Neng, overhearing the two monks talking, declared, "It is your minds that are flapping." Many centuries later, Wu Men Hukai responded, commenting on this episode wind flag minds flapping several miles were flapping <laughs> check out check out this bombastic rant from ahe dogan who is apparently happily ignoring ignoring the formal tenets of right speech fascicle <laughs> uh, 72 of the shogo genzo the treasury of the true dharma eye Do not listen to the words of unaccomplished Zen masters. They speak like this because they do not know the body and they do not know the mind or they say so because they do not have compassion for sentient beings. These human faced dogs, human skin, dogs who have turned into unwholesome dogs have no intention of guarding the Buddha Dharma. They just want to consume urine and excrement of lay people. (laughs) Okay, so is Dogen really that upset with the people who have differing opinions on lay and monastic practice, or is there maybe a sly smile behind his many tirades? Mm -hmm. And I wonder, he has a lot, a lot of rants like this, and I imagine that some, these fascicles he writ, he has written, wrote. There's probably the assumption they that they were uh, circulating amongst the small group temples in Japan, and would he have toned it down had he known tens of millions of people who would be <laughs> ranting insults. So if we if I keep on going on like this, explaining to you how and why something is humorous, the less funny it becomes, and in fact I. Considered giving this talk in the driest academic tone possible. I actually found several dissertations and theses written as such. Playfulness, humor, levity, and laughing are all good medicine, perhaps even vital for an enduring fruitful practice. And for this to be possible, we must allow right speech to serve as a guardian, if you will protecting self and other from harm through recklessness and thoughtlessness. We risk harming our friends when our humor is glib, self-gratifying or dismissive of other circumstances. The Buddha was precise in his description of right speech. He defined it as abstinence from false speech, abstinence from malicious speech, abstinence from harsh speech, and abstinence from idle chatter. In the vernacular, this means not lying, not using speech in a way that creates discord amongst people, not using swear words or a cynical, hostile, or raised tone of voice, not engaging in gossip. Reframed in the positive, these guidelines urge us to say only what is true to speak in ways that promote harmony amongst people, to use a tone of voice that is pleasing, kind, and gentle, and to speak mindfully in order that our speech is useful and purposeful. Right speech is a mindfulness practice where we continually ask ourselves, is it true, is it timely, is it beneficial, and does it come from a kind heart? I refer to right speech as a guardian in part because if our practice of right intention isn't sufficiently developed, right speech is there to step in and turn things in a different direction. Right speech can serve as kind of an antivirus program, keeping an eye on all the bugs and flaws of our fickle karmic consciousness. So crucial is the practice of right speech that it appears twice in our vows to uphold The 10 Grave Precepts. I vow to refrain from false speech. The Dharma wheel turns from the beginning. There is neither surplus nor lack. The sweet dew saturates all and harvests the truth. And again, as the sixth grave precept, I vow not to slander in the Buddha Dharma, go together, appreciate together, realize together and actualize together. Do not permit haphazard talk. Do not corrupt the way. One fruit that is gained through medication, uh, excuse me, meditation practice, is the faculty of non-reactivity, a spaciousness that opens up between our thoughts and actions, in this case, speech. (laughs) Offering space where mindfulness can establish itself and take root. By upholding a tenet of right speech and by continually cultivating this spacious non-reactivity we can be humorous and playful with one another as we all practice this path together. The Dharma gate of ease and joy is always open, always accessible. So finally, yes, there is humor in the Buddhist teachings, of course there is, and it's always been there. So I invite you to explore this facet of the teachings and perhaps see the lightness and the cleverness and even the sarcasm in some of these stories and koans as we in fact are these very koans. So uh, with that, this mouth is going to stop flapping. Thank you so much. Anybody in the room
0: who to ask a question or offer some humor, perhaps? Or seriousness? Yes, Pat. Well, so Royce, I just wondered. You said explore and go and find these stories. But where would you start to find these stories? They were totally new to me, um, the old stories. So.
1: Well, I found uh, a lot of these examples. I didn't, believe it or not, I didn't just like impute, make up these humorous aspects. Um, <laughs> The ones sort from of polycanon were all pointed out uh, from um, again Tanisaro Biku. and I just did um, research online. A lot of it's really you know a lot of the. I came across a lot of the corny jokes, corny Zen jokes. One of which I told about no attachments. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do the hot dog one with everything. I spared you that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, just look around. It's almost like you know, um, when when one is in the mood when there's a little bit of levity in the mind, take a look at these stories with such a mind and see what might come up. I find it hard to believe that, um, that these Zen stories are as behind the seriousness. I think we can find some warm smiles in these interactions.
0: Mel Weisman told that story about the hot dog vendor. Something comes up and says, you know, make me one with everything, right? Yeah. That's the story. Yeah. And so he gets his hot dog with everything and hands over a 20, and the vendor takes the 20 and, you know, puts it in his cash drawer or whatever. And he says, what about my change? And the vendor says, change comes from within. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so that, that's came, that came too. from Bell. <laughs> yeah. I like that one. I, uh, I actually was playing around with chat GPT before this talk, and uh, I, I asked the AI to give me 10 funny stories, and it fired out all of them immediately, all the <laughs> i